Our reading this morning is Matthew 23, verses 13 through 19. The text is also printed for you uh, in your bulletins. Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 13, we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. The 20th century writer W.H. Auden once remarked, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. Because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. That's a beautiful quote. I believe in him because he is the opposite of what I would have made uh, if I created my own Messiah. 
As much as Jesus was not the Messiah, which, the deliverer that, that people in his day thought he would be, I think it's safe to say that he's not the Messiah that we would expect either. Uh, if we were to brainstorm and put together a list of expectations of what we would like our deliverer to be like, we would not come up with the Jesus of the New Testament. We would come up with misconceptions of Jesus. We would come up with pop culture ideas of who Jesus is, but we would not have the Jesus of the New Testament. New Testament. Uh, the words we just read were, were the final words that Jesus spoke to the public at large. Think about that for a second. Not the final words he speaks. He'll speak to his disciples. He'll speak to those who arrest him. But these are the final words that Jesus ever spoke to Israel. The final words that if you were just passing by, you would hear Jesus speak. This is the last impression that he gives to the public. And this is a hard, offensive, and confrontational word. He calls the scribes and Pharisees. Those are the two most respected groups in Israel of this day. Hands down. They are the Bible scholars. They are the teachers of the day. And he says, you are hypocrites. You think you're leading the blind, but in reality, you are the ones who are blind. He calls them dirty and dead on the inside. He calls them snakes. You're snakes, you brood of vipers. Just as we saw last week, the way to read this passage with any integrity, uh, when we do this work of discernment, is that it doesn't begin by looking at our own hearts. Uh, if it doesn't begin by looking at our own hearts, it is inherently sub-Christian. That the honest work of introspection is, is necessary, and we'll continue with that today. Even though the speech of Jesus is tied so uniquely to a particular time and to a particular people, it's a powerful word for us. And, and here's the thing. I would argue it doesn't take much work to, to be very sympathetic toward the Pharisees. And let me explain why. On the one hand, at this time in Israel, you have groups that have assimilated to Roman culture. We saw Jesus encounter the Herodians and the Sadducees. Those are people who said, we just want Roman occupation. We like what Rome has brought. And that compromised their faith in God. On the other extreme, you have other groups who just left Jerusalem. They went to live in the desert. And they went to live in caves. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, those scrolls were preserved by groups like that. They left the cities and they went out to their own self-contained societies. And then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are trying to figure out how do we maintain faithfulness as God's people in what for all intents and purposes feels like a foreign land? How do we maintain faithfulness as God's people even in an occupied land? And here's where the introspection kicks in for us. On the one hand, we can assimilate to secular culture and we can buy into secular ideas of, of success and power and sexuality. Or we can separate altogether and we can live in isolated, self-contained communities. And you, you can have examples in, in, in the Christian world at large of both of those uh, examples. Or we think the right thing to do is to strive to be faithful as God's people in a foreign land. That we're called to be faithful as pilgrims. And this is why Jesus' warnings to the Pharisees aren't just for those people out there, but they're words for us too. So what does that look like? Well, today we'll look at four warnings that we need to heed. Jesus in our passage pronounces woes. Woes aren't necessarily curses. They can be curses, but woes are warnings uh, to, to be taken seriously. They're warnings to heed. Woes are invitations to repent, and we know that because if there is time to repent, there's time to repent. Today is today. Repent. And so we'll look at these four warnings that we need to heed as well. So what are the four warnings? Don't walk the way. Don't miss the point, don't neglect your heart, and don't take your eyes off of Jesus. 
First of all, don't block the way. In verse 13, we have the first of the seven woes that Jesus will pronounce over Israel's leaders. Uh, If you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, I've talked about how in the the final week of Jesus' life, and so especially Matthew 22, 23, 24, Jesus is the last great prophet of God's people. He is the last, best, greatest of Old Testament prophets. Jesus is acting as Israel's last and greatest prophet. Comes to a climax next week with the Olivet Discourse. But Jesus sounds like a fiery prophet pronouncing judgment against God's unfaithful people. And so Jesus begins, right? He didn't get more fiery than this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, make a single disciple, a single follower, and then he becomes a proselyte. That makes him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Yikes, right? What's the warning for us? What warning do we take from these first two woes? Quite simply, don't block Jesus. Don't block the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Don't keep others from that way. Don't shut the kingdom of heaven uh, in the faces of others. What a terrifying prospect that is. Don't block the way. What does it look like to keep people from Jesus? Typically one of two ways. We keep people in their sins, and we keep people in their righteousness. We keep people in their sins. We keep people in their righteousness. How do we keep people in their sins? We tell them that they are good. They are fine just the way they are. God is not upset with your sin or with your sinfulness. And so we just keep people in their sins and we've offered no salvation to them. We've shut the kingdom of heaven to that person. Just as ugly, we can keep people in their righteousness. And we can say, you need to pull it together. You need to produce a life, you need to produce a righteousness that God might find acceptable. And so either way, keeping people in their sin or keeping people trusting in their own righteousness, it blocks the way to Jesus and it makes the cross ultimately completely irrelevant. If there's no sin problem, what a tragedy the cross is. If we can produce righteousness that is enough, what did Jesus accomplish? Let me suggest another way that we can block the kingdom of heaven. These seven woes can be contrasted with the nine beatitudes of Jesus. If you remember the first public words that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, going back to Matthew 5, he goes on a mountain and he preaches a sermon. And how does he start? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. The blessings of the kingdom. And what that means is the kingdom is for people like this. These aren't virtues. Uh, These aren't spiritualities that people need to have in order to be invited into the kingdom. It's that the kingdom is for the poor in spirit. The kingdom is for the doormats of the world, the meek. The kingdom is for those who mourn. Uh, The kingdom is for the persecuted. So how do you block the kingdom? You tear apart the Beatitudes. You tell the poor in spirit uh, who know that all they have is need and poverty, you tell them, no, first you need to become rich. And then you can come to the kingdom. Or you tell the poor in spirit, what are you talking about? You're not poor at all. Apart from Christ, you have enough. Don't listen to that poverty. You tell those who mourn, maybe you just didn't have enough faith. 
You tell those who mourn, you just need to pull it together. You tell the meek to toughen up. You tell those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're already righteous in yourself. You tell the merciful that mercy is weakness, that grace is weakness. You tell peacemakers that all of life is a war that you need to win. And in doing these things, you block the kingdom. Now, I'm spending most of my time on on this one because I I would say that this is the most important woe, and every woe just follows and and explains this this first one. What are the various ways the kingdom gets blocked? So much of the New Testament, especially think of the Apostle Paul, he's writing to predominantly Gentile churches, and and, and you have these calls to holy living, to, to faithful living amidst these ungodly pagan cultures that are pressing in on the church, with all of, their, all of their alluring promises of a better life. But undeniably, Jesus' harshest words and his scariest warnings are for church-going folks. Church-goers who go through the motions. Church-goers who have no love. Church-goers who invert the mission of Jesus. They've come to be served, not to serve. Don't block the way. Don't stand in front of the cross. Preach Christ crucified because that is a stumbling block enough, and it will always be a stumbling block enough. Weakness to the Jew, folly to the Gentile, always a stumbling block. Second warning Jesus gives, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. He calls the Pharisees blind guides, not just hypocrites. Jesus is a master teacher. There's a reason why 2,000 years later we're thinking of Jesus as like he's just a great teacher. He's given us all of these illustrations, all of these pictures. And, and we're used to this one, but it's a good one. They're blind guides. It's the blind leading the blind. The Pharisees think they're the ones that can see, but, but they're like uh, tour guides at an art museum uh, who, who have no idea what a painting looks like. So what are they explaining? Where are they blind? They are poor readers of God's word. They live by the law, but they don't understand the law. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 identifies this exact problem when he says, they have zeal with no knowledge. It's really helpful. It's clarifying. They have zeal, but no knowledge. Um, they're, They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, and so they seek to establish their own righteousness, and in so doing, they don't submit to the righteousness of God. They create a system of righteousness all of their own. That's what Romans 10 is all about. If you want to see the opposite of what Jesus said when he said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, in that Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't make oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just be truthful with your words. If you want to see the opposite of that, you have the Pharisees and their adventure in missing the point. Pharisees come in and they say, you can't swear by the temple, but you can swear by the gold of the temple. You can't swear by the altar, but you can swear by the gift or the sacrifice that lays on top of the altar, then you're good to go. And so to summarize Jesus' rebuke, if you swear by the gift of the altar, you swear by the altar and swear by the gold, you swear by the gold that makes the temple. And if you swear by the temple, you swear by the one who dwells in the temple. What's the summary there? An oath is an oath is an oath is an oath is an oath. Ultimately, it comes back to whom? God. Now the Pharisees intentionally leave God out of this. They're so busy making their rules. They're so busy uh, uh, talking about the proper oath that they've completely uh, separated this from God. God has no business in their their oath system. They've missed the point, but this wasn't an accident. This oppressive legal system was a way to have power over the people. False teachers use God to manipulate people every day, and that's still true. That's what the Pharisees were doing. We see another way they've missed the point. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin 
and have neglected weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You missed the point when you major in minors. They have meticulous rules about tithing garden herbs, but they've completely ignored justice, mercy, and faith. They've neglected the weightier matters of the law. They are weightier not because they're more difficult, not because they're hard to understand, but because they are decisive. They are central to the heart of God. They are what God values most, justice, mercy, and faith. Tithing matters, swearing matters, fasting matters, Sabbath-keeping matters. Minor doesn't mean unimportant, right? Uh, Think of this. Nothing has a more oppressive grip over our hearts than our checkbooks and our calendars, right? And so God says, here's a better way. So tithing is not unimportant. Uh, Sabbath-keeping is not unimportant. Uh, You you want some joy and peace in your life? Live according to to the owner's manual. It's the law for your good and for your flourishing. It's for a better, liberating way. But do not miss the heart of God. Again, Jesus is saying nothing new. He stands right next to Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, where God said, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus, the last great prophet, stands next to Zechariah when he said, I love this question that God asks in Zechariah 7. God says, when you fasted, was it for me? (laughs) Maybe I'm missing that. When you fasted, was it for me? Because thus says the Lord of heaven's armies, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Is that what the world thinks of when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ? More importantly, is that what God sees when he looks at his church? That's why it's a word for us. It's not a word just for the Pharisees. Micah 6 is the great example. I don't want your rams. I don't want your vats of oil. Just do what you already know you're supposed to do. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. To focus on tithing and swearing at the cost of ignoring your neighbor's plight and ignoring your neighbor's suffering is to lose perspective. If you're more interested in rule keeping than helping people live in the goodness and joy of God, you've missed the point. If you're more interested in people thinking you have it all together than helping people to see their need of Christ, which you do by showing your need of Christ, then you've missed the point. The word for this is to be scrupulous. It's to be nitpicky, and that's never a good thing. It misses the forest that we are great sinners in need of a really great savior uh, for the trees, which is trying to eliminate particular sins in our own strength. And Jesus gives us just like a wonderful illustration here. He says, you strain the gnats, but you swallow the camels. Both of them are unclean in Moses' law. Uh, Gnats would breed during the fermentation process of making wine. And so what would happen is you would strain the wine through muslin gauze in order to, to keep the impure gnats out. And so what does Jesus say? You spend all that time filtering your wine, and then you turn and you just eat a camel. One of Martin Luther's great quotes always taken out of context is sin boldly. Have you heard that one before? Sin boldly. It's one of his better pastoral messages that he had. 
Because he's speaking to this issue of being nitpicky. He's speaking to this issue of of trying to eliminate these particular sins when Luther's counsel is you need to cling to the righteousness of Christ and flee to him. And so he says, if you are a preacher of mercy, don't preach an imaginary, but true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. So be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Eventually, I think he would say something along the lines of the lesser or lighter matters of the law flow out of the heart of the person who knows Christ to be strong. Third warning, don't neglect your heart. Basically, the charge of hypocrisy, something we saw a lot last week. To look good on the outside while ignoring the inside. Verse 26, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Pretty self-explanatory. You polish the fine china, you set the china on display, someone takes a look inside the cup and it's disgusting. It's moldy, it's putrid, it's rotten. It looks like a beautiful clean vessel on the outside, take a look inside, it's, it's, it's horrific, it's disturbing. Verse 27, you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Most scholars think Jesus is talking about how at Passover when thousands upon thousands of pilgrims would descend into Jerusalem, ordinary roadside tombs would be painted white so that no pilgrim would accidentally touch a tombstone. Keep in mind, Jesus is saying this during Passover week, so maybe he's saying, you're like those over there that we're looking at, whitewashed tombs. What's the point? Easy. Outwardly, they're beautiful, they're clean, fresh coat of paint, but on the inside, dead bones, decay. The Pharisees look virtuous, they look like the people you go to get some holiness from, but in reality, they contaminate everyone they come into contact with. They look the part, they're holy, they use the right vocabulary, they're always using God talk, but they lead people away from the Lord. Their inability to see what is in their hearts leads to the final woe in verse 39. The Pharisees honor the prophets of old, they build statues and monuments, and Jesus says, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. They make the mistake of looking at history and finding themselves always standing on the right side of it. What's needed, what's called for is Spiritual life that is manifested through humility and grace. Christian spirituality requires us to be honest about who we are when we look in the mirror of our hearts. The Pharisees say they would have stood with the righteous prophets of old, and Jesus says you would have killed them. In fact, you're only going to double down and fill up the measure of your ancestors in how you treat me and my followers. So what's the warning here? Something along the lines of know thyself. Know your heart. Would I have denied Jesus like Peter will deny Jesus? I don't know, but I know I have the capacity to abandon Jesus because I've done it before. All of the ways I've acted with unbelief, isn't isn't every sin an unbelief? Isn't every sin forgetting the very basic fact that Jesus is my friend who bore God's wrath for me, that I will never experience that? So isn't every sin an abandonment of my friend? Just like Peter abandoned his. Would I have joined the crowds and cried for Jesus to be crucified? I don't know, but I love to be approved by the crowds. And I have a really strong voice that can condemn others. 
So on the one hand, this message of Jesus is urgent. Avoid the Pharisees. Stay away from them. They contaminate you. On the other hand, isn't this a word for us? Spiritual death masked as religious piety plagues every generation, and our God hates it. He hates it. So what do we do? Final warning, which is my warning, because Jesus' woes are done. So don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Because this is the Jesus that is not of our imaginations or projections. This is the Christ who confronts us, but also heals us. This is the Christ who is both lion and lamb. He's a God of judgment and at the very same time, a God of tender mercy. I know so many of you are familiar with this, this illustration because it's, it's one of the great ones of the 20th century uh, when C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the, the children come from England into the magical land of Narnia. There's a curse over the land, and they are going to meet the Christ-like figure, Aslan, uh, and, and their liaisons, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, tell them about them. And when they say, yeah, you're going to meet Aslan, he's a lion, the, the, one of the children goes, uh, that's pretty scary. That makes me nervous. And, and Mrs. Beaver says, you're right to be nervous. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. And then Lucy, one of the children, says, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's such an enduring illustration. Is he safe? Was there anything safe about the Jesus that we just read in Matthew 23? He pronounced his judgment as Israel's rightful king. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The king is good, but he's not safe. What a terrifying word, because he's not just the last great prophet of Israel. He is the son of God. Equal in power and glory to the Father and the Spirit. That's the king of all kings. But as much as Jesus sounds the part of a righteous, mighty king that demands we sit up and take notice, he also reveals his tenderness and his affection. He weeps over the city, doesn't he? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus finds no pleasure pronouncing judgment on those that should have received him. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This double name is, is, is a way of expressing pity and affection. Luke 10, Martha, Martha, you are so anxious and troubled, Jesus says to his good friend. The risen Christ in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He pities her, he loves her. Jesus, at the same time, pronounces judgment and reveals his tender heart. How often he wanted to gather Israel under his wings. Uh, when the Son of God needs a picture of his love and affection for his people, he has to go into maternal categories. How I would be like a mother hen gathering her chicks. But they rejected him. They rejected him. And so instead of stretching out his wings, he will stretch out his arms on a cross to gather in the world. Israel was awaiting the one who will come again in judgment. Uh, for the Old Testament saint, the day of judgment was a good day. 
It was a day not to be feared, but a day when God would deliver his own people, when God would reign fully and visibly, and all wrongs would be righted. Everything that's upside down would be flipped right side up. All evil is eradicated. The twist comes in that God comes to his people in Jesus and finds wickedness as much in the house of God as outside of it. But notice his last words here. It's conditional. You won't see me unless or until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You won't see me unless you confess me for who I really am. So here's the key. Jesus turns away from his city in judgment and then will subject himself to judgment. And this is the question that each and every one of us have. Will we stand judged by our works or will we stand judged by Christ's? Jesus comes to save us from our sins and save us from our righteousness. It's why the final warning has to be, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Trust in his better work and his better righteousness. Trust in his salvation that he has brought. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and with our mouths confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who took our righteousness, which are like filthy rags, and clothed us with his spotless robes of righteousness. Blessed is the one who died for the hypocrisy that we hide behind. Blessed is the one with the cleanest of hands and purest of hearts, the one who ascended the hill of the Lord just to descend into our world and bear our sins and take our shame. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord because he has won our salvation. Blessed is the one who has come to save his people from our greater enemies of sin and death. Blessed is Jesus, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, help us to believe this word. By your Holy Spirit, that, that, that this would not just be a word that, that remains outside of us. All of the ways that this has historically been misused as, as, a, as, a, as a very specific judgment of Jesus against a particular people. And yet, don't we see ourselves in this? Don't we see ourselves in the ways that uh, we have blocked the way to you? The way that we have lost sight of what's important to your heart? The way that hypocrisy is such a, a native language to our self-justifying hearts. To on the outside uh, show a, a, a righteousness, to show a holiness that is not reflective of our hearts. It's not reflective of what we believe. And so Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Lord, we know that we come before you as those who deserve judgment for these things that we are not those who have achieved any sense of righteousness that, ex that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And yet, Jesus, you have. And not just for yourself, but for your people. So with the good news of all of us, would that uh, be the word that be transforming for us is that the one who's come in the name of the Lord has truly come. But the good news is that we do not stand uh, on our own works, under our own judgment, but Lord, we are under the, the sweet, gracious flow of your judgment, the protection of your work. So Lord, would that be transforming to us? Would that characterize and shape our walk with you in the way that we love the, those that you have placed into our lives, our neighbors? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work. Uh, we thank you that the, the most awful woes ultimately fell upon his head so that we might be free. We pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen.